0: You all can be seated. Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27. Uh, that's where we're going to start uh, here in just a few moments. And I'll explain kind of where we are in this book of the Bible. And uh, then we'll we'll go through that chapter. Um, but but as you're turning there, I wanted to share about something just for a couple minutes that the pastors have been discussing for even several months and wanted to, to bring before you as a church family starting this morning and then we'll communicate more about this in the upcoming weeks Um, but and we'll send out some communications as soon as either this afternoon or tomorrow about this but the pastors are recommending that we update by August 1st, so a couple months from now, that we update our church's statement of faith. Uh, we've been talking about this for uh, several months, and I wanted to take a few minutes to explain why and kind of what the process would look like if we are going to do that, uh, and then uh, try to give you a couple recommendations of things you could be reading or doing in the weeks ahead to help us even in this process as we consider this. Uh, but a statement of faith is important. It's it's not mandated in the Bible that a church have a statement of faith Uh, but statements of faith are helpful uh, for local churches like ours to have because they help in a concise way articulate what we think the scriptures teach about really core fundamental things about god about us about the world about salvation sin judgment all these types of things Uh, and uh, we have for most of the history of our church we had a statement of faith uh, that some people shorthand called the 1689 or some people called the second London Baptist confession that is a good statement of faith it's an excellent articulation of what the scriptures teach and that was the the statement of faith that our church held to for decades until about six years ago in 2016 and some of you were part of our church even back then. Uh, But through the process of coming into the denomination that we're currently part of, which is called Sovereign Grace Churches, uh, the pastors thought about and led the congregation in a discussion about adopting that denomination, our denomination's statement of faith as our church's statement of faith. And we went through a process of talking about why we thought that would be good, why we felt that resonated even more closely with where where we were, where we are as a church. And so in 2016, we adopted the then current statement of faith for our denominations, sovereign grace churches. since then, even in the last several years, our, ch- our denomination has gone through a slow, deliberate process that took several years even of developing a new statement of faith, one that we expect as a denomination to be long-lasting. Uh, it has a lot of advantages if it covers more subjects, so it's like wider scope, and it covers them with more precision, like it gets into more detail uh, about those different doctrines and those different subjects. And so our denomination has adopted this new statement of faith, and that statement of of faith is what we're recommending that we adopt as our local church's statement of faith. We don't have to do that, we're not required to do that. Nobody's making us do that, uh, but we think that it would be a good move for us as a church. And so we have a couple things available that you can take even this morning and we'll have them in the weeks ahead. We'll try to send some of these things out as well. But if you go out to what some people call it our bookstore or our resource center, if you go out to the lobby and turn right, there's some things out there starting this morning. One is like a manila sheet of paper uh, that articulates some of the background of why we're wanting to do this change. It even gives some examples of ways we think this new statement of faith is an improvement on the one we currently have. and why We don't think our current one's bad, by the way, so don't don't read this uh, suggestion, this recommendation as us saying it's bad. But that manila paper has some explanation and examples of why we think it's an improvement. And then we actually have print copies that look like this. It just says, we believe, a statement of faith on the front of it that are free to you. To any of you who are here today, we'll have more in the weeks ahead if we run out. Um, But that actually has the contents of the statement of faith in it. Uh, And you can get it online as well for free. There's PDFs that you can easily access and there's a URL on that manila paper. Uh, But what we would recommend to you, which would be of help to us as pastors, because we've read through this, we have thought about it, we love it. I have been so encouraged reading through this and I feel like my soul stirred to love Jesus more and be thankful for these articulations of biblical truth. But what we would encourage you to do is to grab a copy of this starting today and take time as an individual, as a family, maybe as a life group, uh, take time to Read through it the next several weeks. I think uh, I can say with high confidence you'll be encouraged as you do so, and you'll see some of why we're recommending that we adopt this as a statement of faith. So, we'll, I would encourage you to grab one of those, read through it. Uh, and if you have questions, any of the pastors would be glad to talk to you individually about it. But we're also setting aside, you see this date on here, July the 10th. It's a little over a month from now, a month and a half from now. Uh, we're picking a Sunday morning, July 10th, and during our normal educational hour, instead of having Classes at nine o'clock. We're just going to dedicate that hour to be a q and publicly for anybody who would like to come uh, to ask questions that morning, and, and we'll do that in lieu of our typical adult classes. So mark your calendar for that. Uh, but uh, hope that you can join us in that process. Our target date, if we are going to adopt it, would be August 1st. So that's over two months from now. We wanted to take some time to walk through this, help you see what we've seen in the goodness of this statement of faith. Uh, but we'd be glad to talk throughout uh, these next few months. And last thing I want to say before we turn to our text is... I want to reassure you on behalf of the pastors we don't view a statement of faith as a like working document (laughs) like we I know we shifted our statement of faith six years ago we don't intend to change it again a a statement of faith should not be something you're just messing with all the time and tweaking it should be a steady solid uh, statement that you can hold to for years and decades to come even possibly till Jesus comes back and so we think if we adopt this this will be that for us it'll be a long-lasting statement of faith benefit our generation and even generations to come. So more on that in weeks to come, but wanted to share that this morning, kind of get the ball rolling on that process, Uh, but I trust that you'll be encouraged as we do. So if you've found Deuteronomy 27, I want to give a brief introduction before I read this text and kind of catch you up to speed with where we are in this book of Deuteronomy. We've been going through it for several months. We even started back in August, and we've taken a few breaks here and there, uh, but we're in the back portion of it now. Uh, But as I was reading through Deuteronomy 27, preparing for this morning, a a scene that kept coming to my mind, uh, I have not been involved with a lot of court proceedings or legal proceedings. I don't know if many of you have, Um, but I have watched a lot of law shows, which I know are not accurate fully, but uh, there's scenes that I have, have, have seen in shows and movies at times where there's a person, a man or a woman, who has these charges that are being brought against them, and they have an attorney either that they've hired that's been assigned to them. And one of the things, amongst many things, that that attorney is trying to do and that you sometimes see depicted in these shows is they're trying to help that uh, plaintiff uh, or defendant, sorry, see, I don't even know my legal terms. They're trying to help that defendant know uh, what plea to make before the judge, there's different options, like at the start of a trial of how you can plead. Uh, You can plead guilty, you can plead not guilty, you can plead no contest. I think there's other options of how you can plead, but one of the things that that attorney is trying to do is help this person think through what are the pros and cons of pleading this way versus this way, and what what road might this lead me down if I make this plea versus this plea, and they try to reason with them, explain the logic and rationale. And what I think you're going to see, what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 27, and you'll have to to bear with me as we read it and as I try to explain it, is I think we're going to see that Moses, as he speaks these words to the nation of Israel, is in some ways acting like that attorney, trying to help prepare the Israelites to think through what sort of plea could you even offer before God who is your ultimate judge. Like what sort of plea could you make? What stuff is off the table plea-wise for you that you can't even entertain? It's not even your right, and it would not be even wise to do so. It's, it's like Moses trying to lovingly, uh, kind of subtly coach his fellow Israelites about what plea to enter in before God. And I think as we read it, God will use this text to instruct us that way as well. To help us, to help you think what sort of plea could I ever offer to God? Uh, what sort of plea should I steer away from as I think about standing before my judge someday? And so uh, in a moment I'm gonna read Deuteronomy 27 but if you've not been with us the book of Deuteronomy is we've seen it's kind of like a farewell address of Moses. He is hundred twenty years old at this point. He is about to die uh, and the the Israelite people are finally about to go into the Promised Land. They're finally about to cross the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. And Moses is giving them this farewell address of sorts, where he is telling them about the history of them and God and their dealings. We saw that the first couple chapters. Uh, Then he's told them for numerous chapters now, he's told them about the stipulations of God's covenant with them. Kind of what the rules are, what the terms are as we go into this land of what God as the supreme ruler is, how he's calling us to live. Deuteronomy we've seen is like a treaty of sorts, like an ancient treaty where there's the history between the two parties. There's the general rules. We saw like the Ten Commandments. There was this long section about specific rules that we just ended last week. And now we're going to get into this section in Deuteronomy 27 of this treaty uh, that in ancient times they would have in these treaties, after they spelled out the rules, they would have these sections where they detail blessings, that come to the people if they obey, and curses that come to the people if they disobey. So the rules have been established, and now we're turning the page into Moses giving them direction about blessing that can come for obedience, curse that will come for disobedience. So that's the section we're starting now. At long last, I will read this chapter. We'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll walk back through it and see how Moses is kind of giving guidance about what plea to make before our judge. So start Deuteronomy 27, verse 1, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land Test, test. There you go. I can even hear myself now. How about that? All right. This is on the other ear that I, I throw me off a little bit. I'm used to the right ear. Uh, okay. So we've read Deuteronomy 27. Uh I I said before I read it that Moses in many ways in this text is trying to uh, prep them for what sort of plea they can make before God. What is on the table? What's off the table? And I think there's two primary pleas that he's taking off the table in this text. saying, don't you dare even think about trying to plead these certain pleas before your creator. Uh, That they will not hold water with your Lord. They will not convince him. They will not persuade him. And I I think the first plea that he is trying to prevent from them is the plea of ignorance. So I want to show you in these first eight verses uh, that Moses is trying to to prep the people of Israel, and I think by extension us, to know that you cannot plead ignorance before God, uh, that that will not work. Uh, Moses, in these first eight verses, uh, is trying to help, I think, the Israelites realize they can't do this. That, that that they'll never be able to plead ignorance. And what the way he does it is in these first eight verses. He's anticipating them finally entering into the land. Right. He he said you probably heard it as I read it uh, that three times in these first eight verses. He uses language of when you cross over, when you have crossed over, when you cross over. Uh, and he knows, like I said at the beginning, he's about to die. He's 120. God has made it clear to him. You're not entering into the promised land. He knows that, but he anticipates this time where they're finally going to be in the land. There's going to be soldiers who have crossed over the Jordan River who are starting to enter into combat, and he gives them commands in this first section to go to Mount Ebal, uh, you may not know much about that. I won't belabor it, but that was, just know that it was a, that was a significant place for the people of Israel, even going back to the story of Abraham and uh, of his descendants. This would have been a significant spot for them to go into the land. And he tells them in these first eight verses to build two things, uh, to, to put up two things. So in verses five to seven, you may have picked up on that he told them to build an altar there. Right? He said to use uncut stones and he said that they're to offer sacrifices there to God, who has brought them into this land at long last, so that was the first thing they were supposed to build was an altar there at Mount Ebal. And the second thing is he tells them to put up stones. I don't know if they were stacking them or putting them side by side, but he tells them to set up plural stones there at Mount Ebal, and he tells them to put plaster around them, and then to write the law of God on those stones, on the plaster uh, that would have been on those laws. So he told them build an altar. And build this pillar or, or these side-by-side stones uh, that you can write the law on. And this is significant, I think, because they if you know the story of what has taken place before this, they already had the law of God written on stones, didn't they? Uh, at Mount Sinai, God had with his own finger, the scriptures tell us, had written this very law on stone tablets, had given it to the people of Israel through Moses, but if you know much of the story, you also know that those stones weren't just on public display, right? They were kept a certain place. They were to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant, which wasn't just getting opened up all the time. It was not seen by the people. It wouldn't have been like they could have their turn, like we can go to the U.S. archives and go see formal documents of our country. Uh, these document, This document, this writing on stone of the law would have been in the Ark of the Covenant. But what he commands here as they go into the land finally is to have a public display of the law, right? Not to be kept in a box, not to be just assumed that people knew it and could see it, but he wanted them to have a public display of the law. And that's why it's written on the stones there. It was to be a permanent reminder of the law to the people of Israel and to anyone who would come into their land. I would note that probably what was written on those stones was not the entirety of Deuteronomy, uh, but probably what we call the Ten Commandments, the, the core of the law was probably what would have been written on the plaster of these stones. And I appreciate not just that it was to be prominent and publicly displayed, but if you look at verse 8, the very end of that, I so appreciate this. He says, you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So he wanted this, this law to be public, to be visible, to be prominent to anyone who would want to see it or who would pass by, but he says it should be written plainly as well. Like he wanted the people to know it, to, for it to be written clearly, to have no question about what this law was calling forth from the people of God. So it was to be prominent, it was to be plain. The law was to be visible to people, to be known by people. And I think the reason why uh, there may be other reasons, but the primary reason why I think that this law was to be written on these stones and to be displayed publicly and plainly was that so no Israelite could plead ignorance of it, right? There could be no Israelite who could rightfully say, oh, I had no idea, God. I, I didn't know the law. I didn't know what you wanted of us. Uh, Moses and God through Moses is wanting the people to have no excuse. He's wanting them to be able to see it. To And if their parents didn't, If their mom and dad failed to teach them the law, they're still without excuse. They could go and see, written on the plaster of these stones at Mount Ebal, they could go and see the law. They could have it be plain to them. They know what God expects of them, right? They're they're without excuse. They cannot plead ignorance. But this is the ancient Israelites, right? The question may come up in your mind is, could we plead ignorance? Could I plead ignorance before God when I stand before him someday? Could any human being plead ignorance of God's law, of what God expects? And what I would want to to share with you today is that this awareness of God's law, this knowledge of what God expects of us, isn't just something that ancient Israelites possessed but it's something that every human being possesses including each of you in this room including me including any person you will ever interact with we know what god expects of us like we know what god's law is and that may make you scratch your head and think well some people don't have the bible Pastor Mark, like some people don't have never read it. They don't even have it in their language. How can you say that they know what God expects of them? Uh, Isn't that just fanciful thinking or conjecture on your part? But I, I think biblically we can know this for sure, that human beings know what God expects of us. Every single one of us. The Apostle Paul, if you, if he wrote about this extensively, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but the first two chapters of the book of Romans, if you read through those again sometime, Paul is going uh, to great lengths to show this very thing that every human being knows what God expects; that there is no human being who has an excuse before Him, and he he said things in that passage Romans 1 and 2 he said first that human beings can know what God expects just by what some people have come to call the natural law by just looking around at the world seeing how the world operates he said this in Romans 1 19 to 20 he said talking just about human beings in general he said what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them This is not just to Israelites, this is to all people. He has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Not just ever since Sinai, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So we can look around, every human being can look around at the world and see at least enough in how they view the world to know there is a God and there is a God who has certain expectations. There's a God who has certain ways that he has made this world to function, right? We are without excuse. There are some, I've talked to people who try to say, man, the Ten Commandments, like, don't murder, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Like, did we really need God to tell us that? Like did we really like don't just all human beings know those things without the Ten Commandments and the finger of God? And they are making the very case for me that Paul is saying here that, yeah, we know. Like we know as human beings that there is moral right and there is moral wrong. We know that there is a certain way that this world is to function, that we all know it. That the revelation of God helps codify it it helps add specificity to it but we all know that there is a God that has this world to function in certain ways and that we are part of it that we're to come under his law and Paul says secondly in those early chapters of Romans that we can learn not just from the natural law and looking outside of ourselves, but that we can know from even internally our conscience teaches us, that there is moral expectations that God has for us as his creatures, right? He said, Paul says in Romans 2, that even those uh, who are unbelievers, even those who don't even have the scriptures, he says that they have a conscience that bears witness to them, right? That that bears witness to them, and he he says even more specifically in chapter 2 that they have conflicting thoughts within them that either accuse or excuse them. Like, we all have a conscience, don't we? I I, I think it would be fair to say, if I could peer into your experience as a human being, you have a conscience, right? We talk often how you don't have to teach a kid to sin, right? That's true. My, My kids have sinned without me teaching them. I sinned without my parents teaching me. But as true as that is, we don't have to teach kids to sin. We also don't have to teach kids to feel conviction for sin right? Like if you observe little kids, there are certain things that when they do it, they know it's wrong. Like that's why they try to hide it. That's why they try to shrink back from it. That inner conscience is embedded in us as human beings, where we know, even in our experience, even apart from intellectual explanations, we know in our experience there is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is bad, and I have a choice about how I follow that or do not. And so our conscience, I I saw one person before explain how the conscience is like a candle within us. Like it may be a faint light, and it's a light that could get dimmer. We could sear our conscience. We could could stop listening to it. But it is an ever-present light within us that points us no matter what our religious background, no matter what we know of the Bible or not, our conscience is like a candle within us that at least sheds some light on the reality that there is right and wrong that there is good and there is evil, and that light never truly goes out. And the conscience may be a candle, it may give faint light, the scriptures are more like a floodlight or a spotlight that show more and more, with more and more clarity, Yet this is right, this is wrong, this nuance is right, this nuance is wrong. Scriptures are like a floodlight that comes on the moral reality and expectations of it, but every human being, whether ancient Israelite or modern Hoosier, knows that there is right and wrong. That there is an expectation of our creator, of us as creatures, right? And I know some like to make a big deal nowadays about, uh, they they throw a a big, uh, I don't know, like they complain a ton when the Ten Commandments aren't displayed anymore in public places. They get very frustrated about that. Believers get frustrated. Why can't we have the Ten Commandments displayed anymore? But... Hopefully, if that's you, this can be an encouragement to you that even if the Ten Commandments are invisible to people, human beings still know that there's a God who made them and that has expectations of how they are to live their life. The Ten Commandments help codify it, but they know. And just by way of application, before I move to the second uh, plea that Moses pulls off the table for the Israelites and for us, and thinking of this, we can't plead ignorance I think it's important for us as the people of God, if we're followers of Jesus, is that we make sure we don't allow people, unbelievers, to either forget that law of God or trivialize it or try to snuff it out in their life. The the conscience of people we engage with can and does become seared right? It does become very faint at times. That, that knowledge that they began life with of there's right and wrong sometimes does become more faint and that they start to make excuses for themselves. They start to justify things I think deep down they know are wrong and it is partly our role. This is an unpleasant part of being a herald of the good news of Jesus is that we need to confront people lovingly with the reality that they are going against the law of God that they know to be true. Like it does not serve them to just let them think that they are doing fine, that they are doing okay, that that God is okay with their disobedience. That will do nothing but damage to them. That will make them think less of Christ. It will make them think less of the good news of Jesus. We have a responsibility to kindly, lovingly, not necessarily aggressively and harshly, but to hold the mirror of the law up in front of them. Whether it's directly from Scripture, most prominently, or if they're not willing to believe that yet, to even hold natural law up to them and say, friend, like you, do you know that lying is wrong? And if they acknowledge yes, which I think they would, ask them if they have done that like hold the, the mirror of natural law before them uh, to help them see that they don't, not only do they not live consistent with what God has commanded in the scripture, but they don't even live consistent with what they say they believe is true, what they say they think is right. And we have this responsibility to lovingly confront them with the, the wrongness of their behavior, both past and present, to help them see that they are not ignorant of the law of God. Even if they're ignorant of scriptures, they are not ignorant of the law of of God. second application with this is parents, I would encourage you, especially if you have young children, is to make sure that you are teaching the law of God to your children. Uh, we did a, way, a series we called Wayposts uh, numerous months back of the discipleship of children and steps we can try to lead them down. And the second one we talked about really early on in the life of a child is to try, we called it uh, the Waypost of Instruction. That we want from a very young age for children to know their need of the gospel. They need to know that there is a law of God that he calls them to obey and that they are incapable of keeping it. Uh, that they defy him. That they go against him. That is part of our responsibility is not just to puff them up and flatter them, but to lovingly hold the law of God up to them and say, son or daughter, like, do you see what God calls from us? And do you see how you break that? Do you see your own guilt? Like this is the ways that I have been guilty of law breaking. These are ways I see you being guilty of law breaking. We must do that. That, that, That's doing the groundwork of them being able to plant the seed of the good news of Jesus. Is to confront people with the wrongness of their behavior. That they know deep down is wrong. And so don't shrink back from that, appeal to them, call them to see what they know is true in their own heart, but even more so to see what is explicitly stated in the scriptures of the law of God that he calls us to live and our our awareness of it. No one can plead ignorance before the judgment seat of God. Not you, not me, not anyone. So Moses is kindly in the first section and calling for a public display of the law. I think he's, he's telling them, don't try to plead ignorance before God. Like God has gone to great lengths to show us what he expects of us. But in the second half of this chapter day I think you see Moses is trying to remove another plea from them, another plea they might try to bring before God. And that's the, the plea of innocence. So if they can't plead Ignorance, he's also trying to help them see they can't plead innocence as well. And I would say to you the same thing that you cannot plead innocence before God either. You are aware of his law. You are accountable to his law. And Moses in the second half of this chapter, so starting in verse 9 down to the end, uh, he is, he's giving them commands about a ceremony to conduct there at the foot of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. These are these two mountains that would have been side by side. I've seen pictures of it. Uh, they are They're side by side. And down in the valley, there's this place called Shechem, which would have been a significant location for them. And Moses knows he's not going to be there to see this, but he's giving instructions to them. Uh, Not only are they to make that altar and put those stones up, but they're to do this ceremony where on those two mountains, they're supposed to have half of the tribes of Israel go to one, and half of the tribes of Israel go to the other. So six and six. And these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, they're to be symbolic of the two possible fates or two possible judgments that God will have on his people based on whether they keep this covenant or whether they don't. And so he, sent, he says to send this half of the, the tribes to Mount Gerizim and there to symbolize those who could receive blessings if they keep the law, if they actually do what God says to do, and then he sends, says to send half the other tribes to Mount Ebal, and there to symbolize the cursedness that could come upon the people if they disobey the law. And this, this was part of these covenant treaties uh, that would be in the ancient world, where after all those rules had been spelled out, now there's blessing for obedience that's detailed There's curse for disobedience that is detailed. He's going to continue this. We'll see this next week. More about this blessings and curses further established. But this language of blessing and curse goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Like if you remember on the creation accounts, when God creates the first human beings, it says that he blessed them, right? And then gives them this command about how they're to operate. There's this blessing of God that can be given and was given initially to human beings. But when sin enters into the picture and Adam and Eve give in to that temptation from the serpent, there starts to be this language of curse, right? God pronounces a curse on the serpent, and God pronounces a curse even on the ground. Like all the, the world that human beings live in, God lays down this curse upon humanity, a curse upon the serpent, a curse upon our existence as those who have entered in to sin. And so Moses here, as he imagines this ceremony that he wants to take place there at the foot of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, he he gives them a script again, kind of like what we saw last week. He gives them this script that you see starting in verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. Where he And I'm not going to go into detail about all these. But he gives them this series of 12 different statements, like a a kind of a, a... call and response, where he calls the Levites, this priestly tribe, to say, you probably picked it up as I was reading it, to say, cursed be anyone who fill in the blank. And they say 12 different things. Cursed be anyone who does this. Cursed be anyone who does that. Cursed be anyone who does this. It's this cycle of 12 statements where they're saying, those who do these things are going to be cursed, not blessed. The, there is a curse that will come for these things. And I think these are samples of types of disobedience to the law. This is not like if I skate by and I get these 12 okay, uh, then I avoid curse. This is just to be a, an examples of the whole of the law that if you disobey the law of God in these ways, curse is going to come upon you, curse is going to be your fate. And these have a a theme, I would say. It even is explicitly stated in a few of them about things that are done in secret. Like that language is used specifically, if you see it. Of actions that are done in secret. And what he is wanting them to know is that even if other people don't see, like even if you keep up an image to other people of outward obedience to the law, God sees. and, And there is a cursedness that will come upon you even if no one else knows. There will be a cursedness that comes upon you for the disobedience you know you're committing. That, that you cannot hide, that the Lord sees, and that there is a curse that comes. But it's not just a statement, curse be anyone who does this, right? He calls for a response from the people, which is fascinating, right? He, he calls them to respond. You see this cycle again and again in these verses. Cursed be anyone who does this. And all the people say, amen. Right, you heard me say, amen. 12 times when I was reading this text that the priests say, cursed be anyone who does this, the whole group, amen, amen, amen. Amen, you sometimes say in church or we sing in church or things. It's a a shorthand way of saying like, yes, or let it be so. These would have been sobering amens to say, wouldn't they? Like for these people who would be there on those mountains and they hear, cursed is anyone who does this. These people aren't like, yeah, amen. Like it's a a sobering amen. Like if I do these things, if my kids do these things, if any of us Israelites do these things, cursedness is what will come upon us. They would have been these sobering amens coming out of their mouth as they hear, cursed be anyone who does this. Cursed be anyone who does that. And the final one, if you look at verse 26, that last amen I think would have been the most sobering of all of them. To say if that for the people who would be standing there hearing this? Because he says all the other ones have been like specific things, right? Like that if you do this very specific thing, cursed. If you do this very specific thing, cursed. If you do this very specific thing, cursed. When he gets to this last one, he says, has them say, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, that is like a catch-all statement, right? Saying, if you don't keep the entirety of this law, cursed. These these 11 things that I've just said, it's not that those are the only expectations. You are to keep all of it. And if you do not, you are cursed. You are cursed by God himself. If you look, even this, this chapter is kind of bookended by statements. I just looked, showed you the last verse. Oh, it's like this comprehensive call to obey look back at verse one of what i read the very first thing that i read it says now moses and the elders of israel commanded the people saying then hear how he says this keep the whole commandment that i command you today right it's not commandments right he says it's singular." Like this, this whole thing, this law that I've just been giving you uh, for hours probably as he's speaking these things, keep it as one commandment, the whole thing. Like you are to keep the whole deal. Every single part of it is expected of you to keep it. That's why in the book of James, James chapter 2 verse 10, James said, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it you heard that text before? That if you keep all of the law of God, but you fail in one point, he says, you have become guilty of all of it. And it's like, I think Moses is, in some ways, he knows he's about to pass away. He knows he's about to die. I think Moses, in some ways, uh, and we'll see this way more clearly next Sunday, he knows they're going to disobey. Like he knows they're going to royally screw this up. Like, he knows that they're going to fail. And I think he probably even knows them well enough to know, even though they're going to fail, there's going to be some Israelites who will have the audacity to still claim that they're righteous. That, yeah, we've broken this part, but, you know, by and large, we're good. Like, we, we keep the law, most of it. And it's like Moses, in giving them especially what we call verse 26 here, this very last, Curse be anyone who doesn't confirm the words of this law by doing them. It's like Moses, in having them then say, Amen, is wanting to put them on record. Right? He, he's wanting them to be on record as saying, We know we have to keep all of this. Like, we know that the whole thing is our responsibility to keep. And it's like he wanted them in his kindness, and and this may not feel like a kind thing, to have that amen that came from their mouth to be like a self-condemnation, like a self-attesting, like, I I knew the terms, I knew the consequences, I knew, we knew we were to keep all of it, and now we have failed to do it. Like, we cannot plead ignorance, we cannot plead innocence. It's like Moses is imagining in the future being able to say, play back the tape, like, do you remember there at Shechem? Do you remember there at the ceremony? Our, we or our forefathers said, curse be anyone who doesn't keep the words of this law. And we said, amen. Curse is rightfully coming to us. Curse is rightfully what we deserve as people who have broken the law of God. And so this is true of the Israelites, right? They can't plead innocence. Like, they know cursed is anyone who doesn't keep this law and keep all of it. But the same is true of us, the same is true of you, that you cannot plead innocence either before the Lord. You cannot do it. The Apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, uh, that verse that I've been referring to here at the end of today's text. The Apostle Paul quoted that in the very text that Lori read so well for us earlier in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And in Galatians, chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quotes this last verse of Deuteronomy 27, and he said this. He said, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So like anyone who thinks that they're going to be able to plead righteousness, like I've kept the law, God. He says, anyone who's relying on that of saying, I'm innocent, I've been good. He says, anyone who tries to plead that is under a curse. And then he quotes this, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Paul is saying what I've been saying, and what Moses was saying here, that if if we do not keep any part of the law of God, any fraction of it, we cannot rely on our own good standing. To, to go before God with our righteousness. We, we've broken it all if we've broken any of it. It is all or nothing. That's why there's just two mountains, right? It's blessed or cursed, Ebal or Gerizim. It, there is two faiths. There are two ways that we could be viewed by God and, and treated by God, either blessed or cursed. And if you don't, if the Israelites didn't keep the law, all of it cursed. And if you do not keep all of the law of God, you are cursed as well. Every single human being is cursed if we do not keep the totality of the law of God. If I was gonna stop here, just end of Deuteronomy twenty seven, I, I would understand if you left despairing. If you left thinking, great, like Paul or Moses has pulled off the table the possibility of me or anyone ever pleading ignorance. Like we know what's expected. And he's removed off the table the ability to plead innocent. Like, I I know the law. I'm guilty of it. I've broken way more than one part of it. So I'm guilty of all of it. We know this. We, We break his law. We deserve his judgment. We deserve to be cursed. But Moses, in his mind, even as he was saying these things to the people of Israel and trying to help them pull these pleas that they may be tempted to go to off the table. Moses knew. He didn't know as much as we know. But he knew that someday there was going to be a Savior who would come. right? He knew that there was a plea that people could make before God that would actually work. It wasn't ignorance. It certainly wasn't innocence. But he knew there was a plea that we could make and that plea that, that Moses in some way knew and that we know more fully now and that I want to share with you now is that even though you cannot plead ignorance and you cannot plead innocence, the plea you can make is that you can plead Christ. That is the only, only hope. That is your only plea that you could ever make before God and have any hope of forgiveness, have any hope of blessing, is that you can plead christ and in our court system if you tried to go into before a judge and you tried to plead somebody else's merits somebody else's actions you would get laughed out of the courtroom or probably were like scolded and mocked maybe like you would never go into a courtroom and say I know I'm guilty, but this guy over here, like, look at what he did. Like, uh, like count, count that for me. You, you cannot do that. In our court system, rightfully, you are on trial for your actions, right? Like, you are accountable for the things that you do. But in the, the divine courtroom, the divine justice of God, God actually allows us, and he even invites us, to appeal and to plead someone else's merits say, I don't have anything. Like I have unrighteousness. I have sin to bring to you. I have cursedness to bring to you. But I'm going to make a plea to you of someone else's righteousness. Something that they have done for me. That is what we can do with the person of Christ. Also in the text that Lori read for us in Galatians 3 chapter chapter 3 verse 13 Paul said this and you heard it read earlier but I, I want this to sink into you now that you have heard about the curse that should be coming to you. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13, he said this very simple but glorious thing. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Like Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. If all of humanity could be divided between those two mountains of either those who kept the law or didn't keep the law, if all of humanity, the billions who have ever lived or will ever live, if they could all be divided between those two mountains and whether they deserve blessedness or cursedness, the one mountain would have one person on it. person of Jesus. There is one human being and it is not you and it is not me who could rightfully stand on that mountain, on Mount Gerizim and deserve the blessing of God who's kept the law of God perfectly. It's the person Jesus. Yet, though all the billions of us others are rightfully on that Mount Ebal deserving the curse of God for our our sin against him, as Jesus went to the cross, see, the, the righteous one went to the cross, he took our cursed sin, our vile disobedience, the, the things that we have done again and again and again against our God, that where we have defied Him. Jesus took that sin upon Himself. That's what Paul means when he says He became a curse for us. He, he took the, the weight, the full extent of our sin, got counted to Him, then He was cursed by God the Father that the judgment of God that should be aimed at all of us on Mount Ebal was aimed at Jesus on Mount Calvary, right? Like that he became a curse for us, took all of it, every bit of it upon himself, suffering the full wrath of God, even to the point of death. And he was laid in the tomb, and it could feel like, great, like the one person who could stand on Mount Gerizim is in a tomb now. Great, like blessing for no one. But God raised him back up from the dead, right, on that Sunday morning. That's why we worship on Sunday mornings. God raised him back up from the dead as a reward for his obedience to the point of death. Not only had he kept God's law in living, but he had kept it even in dying. He had been obedient to God the Father, and God raised him up from the dead. And that was a sacrifice that actually worked right? Even here in Deuteronomy 27, he commanded them to make sacrifices, right? He told them, build an altar, like get those uncut stones, stack them up, make sacrifices. They made those sacrifices. Curse could still come, right? Like these people who had just made these sacrifices, it did nothing to remove the curse from them. It did nothing to remove the potential of curse from them. There was curse that could still come to them and did still come to them. But when Christ became a sacrifice for us, he bore the full weight of that curse so it could be removed, we could be redeemed from it, released from it once and for all, right? That sacrifice actually worked. It actually accomplished the removal of the curse for us. And I want to call upon any of you who are in this room today who have never placed your faith in Christ. You have heard today that you are guilty of the law. You have broken it. You are not innocent. You deserve the cursedness of God. You deserve the wrath of God. But you have heard the good news that Jesus has borne that curse for you. I call upon you today. I I, I want to give you, if I could say it this way, the plea deal of all plea deals. Right? God offers you a plea deal to say, you who are cursed... Like you who are unrighteous, who have nothing good to bring to me, make a plea with me. Come to me with the merits of my son, Jesus, the one who died for you and the one who's been raised for you. If today, make today the day that you stop trying to come to God with your righteousness and you start making your plea, Jesus and Jesus alone like that he suffered for you, that he became a curse for you. He bore the curse that you deserved so that you could be freed of it, that you could be forgiven. And God will not laugh at you. He will not mock you. He will not laugh you out of his divine courtroom. He will smile and he will receive you. Like he offers pardon to you, not because you are good, but because Christ has become a curse for you. And Christ has died for you and been raised. I would call upon you to call upon Christ today. Make him your plea before God he will gladly pardon you. And to those of us in the room, and I know there are many, who maybe long ago we were born again. Long ago we started making Jesus our plea before the Heavenly Father. My call to you, my call to us today, is to make sure that we resist the temptation to morph our plea before God into Jesus and my goodness. Like Jesus and my obedience. Jesus and my righteousness. Jesus and anything else. If, if our plea... before God starts to become Jesus plus anything, it is a plea that will not work. Like the only plea that we can offer to God the Father is the work of Jesus on our behalf. That is the only thing that works in his courtroom. And we must resist the temptation to start to think, because i become more obedient, I can kind of add that in. Like when I stand before the Father, I can say, yeah, Jesus died for me, but I also did this. Like remember I did this? Remember I did this? You don't need that. Don't bring that to God. Make your only plea now and ever and only and always the good work of Jesus on your behalf, on the cross and in his resurrection. We sing the song often, before the throne of God above. I I had those lyrics just rolling through my mind thinking of this text. Where we sing this often, we say, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest, whose name is love, who ever live and pleads for me. And later on we sing, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. He tells me my cursedness. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sins. I can't help but cry sometimes when we sing this. We say, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Like Jesus is our plea, right? These were sobering amens that would have come out of these people's mouths there at the foot of those mountains or on those mountains. They were sobering amens. We can say, Glad, joyful amens at the good news of Jesus, right? That not just curse is coming to us, but blessing can come to us to our sinners who are guilty. Blessing can be offered to us because of the work and granted to us because of the work of Christ. We don't have to just say sobering amens to our cursedness. We can say like soaring, rejoicing amens to our blessedness that is granted to us in Christ. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song together. uh, And then I will leave us with the word of blessing, benediction. Father in heaven, please, uh, please forgive us for the ways that we try to approach you now or that we imagine approaching you on judgment day with our own righteousness, with our own good works. May you forgive us for thinking that we could ever plea innocent. May we take you at your word that if we come to you pleading, pleading the work of Jesus on the cross, that you will gladly receive us and pardon us. You will forgive us, that you will adopt us as your sons and daughters, that you will make us part of your family, and that someday you will raise us up to an eternal state of blessedness, not of cursedness. So that melt hardness of heart, may it melt self-righteousness. God, we pray even as we sing that we would remember that Christ has done all necessary to gain us good standing with you. And we pray this in his name.